0: Father, the psalmist said, then I will go to the altar of God, my exceeding joy. Lord, would you fill us with exceeding joy this morning over the reality that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? And would you show us what that means for us in everyday life? That we we might, in response to that, walk in holy confidence, bold hope, a life surrendered to you knowing that because Jesus is alive, death truly is done and risk is right. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there was a man who had just enjoyed a wonderful meal at a restaurant, ribeye steak, baked potato with all the fixings, Caesar salad, rolls, uh, sourdough rolls, just a beautiful meal. So the server came up to him and said, I see you're done with your meal. Would you be interested in dessert? He said, yeah, I might be interested in dessert. What do you got? Server mentioned a number of things and then said, we have, we just have out of the oven, fresh baked homemade apple pie. He said, that'll be a great finish to a great meal. Bring me a slice of that with a hot cup cup, cup of coffee. So a few minutes later, Server comes out, steaming cup of hot coffee, and then a big wedge of apple pie. Took out a clean fork and forked off a big piece at the edge of the pie and was just looking forward to his taste buds, dancing in delight over the sugary, sweet apple taste of that fresh-baked, homemade apple pie. But just seconds after he took a big bite of that pie he figured out his taste buds told him it was decidedly it, did, it decidedly did not at all <clears throat> taste like an apple pie. What's wrong he thought he took a small second bite and again his taste buds let him know in no uncertain language this is not apple pie. He was wondering what in the world's going on. So he called the server over, "Hey, I ordered apple pie and it doesn't taste anything like apple pie." And the server said, quite sheepishly, well, you see, we ran out of apples, and so we just we used potatoes instead. The texture is almost the same. Now, the person who told that story was making this point, that apples are an irreducible element of apple pie. Without apples, whatever you call it, even if you called it apple pie, if we don't have apples, it is not apple pie. Well, just as if you take apples out of an apple pie, you no longer have apple pie, if you take the resurrection out of Christianity, guess what? You no longer have Christianity. Why? The resurrection is an irreducible element of Christianity. Call it what you want. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you do not have Christianity. Now, that's exactly why Paul is writing 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we began to wade in last week. People were going around, according to verse 12, and saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. That's why Paul says, both in verses 13 and 16, if you'll drop your eyes on on those verses, he says in verse 13, hey, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Paul is making this point. Listen, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus wasn't raised in the past, and your whole faith is nothing but a fraud, a fake, a hoax, a joke. And so last week, he introduced this chapter by giving three proofs of Christ's resurrection. Do you remember what they were? The proof of scripture, the proof of eyewitness accounts. And finally, the proof of you, walking in newness of resurrection life. This week, verses 24 through 38, what we're going to see is this. I'm sorry, verses 12 through 34, what we're going to see is this. The implications of Christ's resurrection, the so what, if you will, of Christ's resurrection. The title is this, because Jesus is raised, dot, dot, dot. And we're gonna see three powerful implications. Because Jesus is raised, Christianity is not a fable, it's fact, number one. Number two, because Jesus is raised, death is done. And stand over a casket of a loved one, that don't matter to you. And number three, because Jesus is risen, risk is right in this life. Y'all with me? So point number one, and maybe you had have an outline in front of you, because Jesus is risen, Christianity is fact, not fable. It is not uncommon for people to say, hey, listen, in the end, if it turns out Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead, you know what? At least I lived a better life. Even if it wasn't true, even if I was just perpetuating a hoax, at least it made me live a better life. You ever heard somebody say that? If it's not true, at least it caused me to live a better life? Sometimes people even say, hey, Christianity is actually a myth, but people call it a helpful myth, almost like Aesop's fables. Yes, it's a fictitious story, but it it teaches some truth that's helpful in this life. Now, people who come with those kind of sentiments certainly never read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 12 through 19, at least in any deep way. Because in this first chapter, and by the way, I could build a sermon on each of these chapters in many hands, so I'm looking at high-level points, so give me grace right here. We're not going to dive that deep, but deep enough to get the big idea in this first paragraph that Christianity is not fable, it's fact. And Paul gives seven crystal clear negative consequences if Jesus is what? If he is not risen from the dead, which is what they were saying, resurrection doesn't happen, he gives seven negative consequences. We're just going to walk the text and look at them. Number one, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, according to verse 14, Our preaching is in vain. The word vain literally means it's empty. If Jesus is still in the grave, then the message that I share with you right now or the message that you share with friends, it's empty. It is no more meaningful than the words of a speech you might hear at the lodge or a political campaign. In fact, less Second of all, he says, if Jesus Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain, means it is empty. You ever hear people say kind of generically, all you got to do is have faith, right? As if faith has value in itself, but faith in faith is folly. Faith is only as good as its object, right? Right? You can have all the faith in the world that you can fly, but you jump off that third-story building, reality will hit you with a great big thud before things blank out. You can have all the faith in the world that you could walk over some thinly frozen lake ice, but those icy waters will remind you of reality, that faith didn't get it done. And he's saying, is, he, if you have faith in a Savior that's not risen, it's empty, it accomplishes nothing. Third of all, he says this, verse 15, we are found even to be misrepresenting God. The word literally is a false witness. We are liars. Last I checked, liars are not good, even when you're lying about something perhaps good. But it's tr- the false, so that makes it bad. Dropping down to verse 17, fourth of all, your faith is futile, different word than vain, that means meaningless, not, hey, you know, even though it wasn't true, it was still good for you. No, he says it was meaningless if Jesus is still in the ground. Number five, he says this, you are still in your sins. He's talking to living people. Sixth of all, he's addressing dead, he's talking about dead people. Sixth of all, verse 18, then those who have also, who have also have fallen asleep in Christ, they have perished. They're gone. They're done. Nothing more. And finally, he says, verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And isn't that how you feel about somebody who's built their whole life around a lie? I was watching the Heaven's Gate cult documentary a few weeks ago, and they built their life around this crazy lie that caused them to emasculate themselves, some of them, and and do all these crazy things, and finally commit suicide. They are to be pitied, right? They built their lives around lies. Now, let's be honest. Even those of us who believe in the resurrection can sometimes functionally think and feel as if we don't believe the resurrection because we can wallow in the sense that my life is empty. There's the word again. That my life is meaningless. And sometimes we can even feel like our life is worthless and hopeless. And that's why we need to flip these seven negatives into seven positives because Christ is risen from the dead. Christ is risen indeed. So let's go back to the top of the list. Because Christ is alive, number one, verse 14 again, our preaching is not empty. Whether it's pulpit preaching that I'm doing right now or the kind of sharing that you do with your friends and coworkers. Why? Because the message that we share is full of life and eternity changing truth. Ain't nothing a political rally can give you, right? Number two, Because Christ is risen, your faith is not empty. In fact, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. Third of all, because Christ is risen, we are faithfully representing God. We are found to be faithfully representing God. Even if other people don't like what we have to say, disbelieve what we have to say, mock what we have to say. No, no, no. We are faithfully representing God because Christ is risen indeed. Verse 17, fourth of all, again, your faith is not futile or worthless. It is immensely precious because it is connecting you for time and eternity to the living God. Next of all, You are not in your sins anymore. Listen, if Jesus Christ is still in the ground, you're still in your sin. But Jesus took our sins into the grave and he stepped out of the grave without our sins. Because he was released from the power of death, we too will be released from the power of death. Because Christ is risen, we're no longer in our sins. Six of all... Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have not perished because it says in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord as we await the resurrection of our glorified bodies. And seventh of all, we are not to be pitied, we are to be envied. Now, all I'm trying to say in quick summary form from this first paragraph, verses 12 through 19, is that because Jesus is risen, Christianity is not fable, it's fact, and it will outlive every earthly power. Now, speaking of that, we'll go to the second paragraph. Because Jesus Christ is risen, death is done. You ever notice that sometimes we over Piously talk about death, we Christians do. As if the verse I just quoted, 2 Corinthians 5:8, is the only verse in the Bible about death. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we can also almost give the impression that to mourn death is unspiritual. Anybody feeling what I'm saying? We can do that. But I want you to notice the heart verse, the center verse, the core verse of this second paragraph. It is found in verse 26 when he says, the last, what, friend, enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death is actually still, even for us believers, an enemy. Did you know that? Why is death an enemy? Well, four things I thought of. Death is an enemy, number one, because it was not part of God's original plan. Death was not part of God's original creative order. We'll see how it came into creation in just a minute. Second of all, death is painful a lot of times. And even if someone dies a painless death, the descent down towards death, um, the loss of health is often a very unpleasant and sometimes unsightly thing, right? In a fallen world. Third of all, he's really not talking about unbelievers in this, in this text, but for an unbeliever, someone who dies outside of Christ, death is the doorway to eternal damnation. And fourth of all, for all of us, death is an enemy because it leaves grieving loved ones behind, right? There's pain, there's mourning, there's sorrow, there's anguish. Death is an enemy. And that's why all people spend all life trying to deal with death in different ways, and even atheists, they know who would say that we were not made in the image of an almighty creator. They even, they even know intuitively there's a sanctity of life in a human being. You know, you pass a dead deer on the road, and like, oh, there's a dead deer. Ooh, it kind of stinks. But you can be in a car of people cracking up, and they pass an accident scene in which it looks like there was a fatality. Doesn't everyone suddenly sober up just like that? Because we know that there's a weight to a human being, and we try to p- keep at arm's bay this impending thing called death that bats a thousand. Last I checked, the death rate was one for one. I don't think that's changed today. So, how, this is how people deal with death. Some fight death obsessively, they just fight against it. They fight against it. I learned about a foundation called the Methuselah Foundation named after the oldest person who ever lived in the Bible, Methuselah, who, if I'm not mistaken, lived 969 years. And the said goal of the Methuselah Foundation is this, that they would help resist aging and extend life. Their tagline, believe it or not, is turning 90 into the new 50. (laughs) And there's even a scientist on board this crew who believes that one day with a few more tweaks and a few adjustments, Human beings will be able to live up to 1,000 years old. Now, that's not something that excites me. I don't know about you. But even if that were the case, there's still an expiration date after 1,000 years. We live, I think specifically in Western culture, a culture of, perpet- of seeking perpetual youth, right? Youth is this almighty idol plastic surgery, the right diet, the right fitness regime, and all the rest. And it's all nothing but a mirage because we have an expiration date since the fall. We'll get to that. So some fight it obsessively, death. Some deal with death by just embracing it fatalistically. Eastern religion does that. Buddhism, Hinduism, you just kind of go back into creation and maybe you come out as a different form, reincarnation and like. But I think that idea is also prevalent in popular culture. Now, I'm going I'm I'm to uh, adjust a, a well-known saying so I can still preach. Life is a beach and then you die, right? It's just this idea that death is inevitable. There ain't no getting around it. Life is a beach and then you die. I thought it was kind of funny. Nobody else here did. Okay, all right. At least give me credit for changing it. I remember when I was in the Marine Corps, my last my last position, it was at Camp Geiger, and uh, there was the battalion commander there, the company commander above me, and I was a lowly first lieutenant. And I remember the battalion commander telling my captain something he had to do. And you generally don't talk back to people of superior rank in the Marine Corps. It usually doesn't go well. But he did. He said, with all due respect, sir, there's only three things I got to do. Stay white. He was a white man pay my taxes, and die. And he was hooking into the inevitability of death. He was embracing it stoically and fatalistically. That's how many people deal with it. They just embrace it fatalistically. Third of all, some people envision it sentimentally. They envision death sentimentally. They'll say stuff like this. We use euphemisms, passing on, as if you're just, you know, in a glider, moving on to the next place, right? Never mind going into the ground and rot and all the rest, right? They'll say so and so was in a better place. The biggest lie ever told, in many cases. They'll say sports commentators will say, you know, so and so was looking down at this game, or I bet he's up with Uncle Bob playing a round of eighteen right now, or. She's seeing grandmother right now and on and on. And even, even mili- military people who die in combat, they have this expression, see you in Valhalla, which is kind of a Nordic a mythological place for heaven. That's how people deal with it. They fight it obsessively. They embrace it fatalistically. They envision it sentimentally. As Christians, we're to understand it biblically. And that's what Paul is trying to get across to the church at Corinth in chapter 15. Look how he introduces this, this second chapter. He says, "But in fact, Christ, what? has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What's first fruits mean? It's an agricultural expression. It means basically the first pickings of a harvest that's going to show what's to come. He's the first fruits of a huge harvest of resurrection. And verses 21 through 22 tells us a couple of things. One, where death comes from. And two, the roles that two men play in human history and everybody's destiny here. First of all, there's Adam. If you look at verse 21, it says this. For as by a man, we'll we'll see that's Adam in the next verse, by a man came death. Verse 22 For as in Adam, all die. And what Paul is referring to here is when Adam took of the tree and of the forbidden fruit, he plunged all humanity into sin and death. In other words, the reason there's death in this world, if you're new to this, is because of a first man named Adam who by his act of disobeying God plunged every person after him into the same curse of sin and death. You say, well, how in the world does that work? There is something called the doctrine of federal headship. You ever heard that expression? Say that with me, the doctrine of federal headship. It's actually really easy to understand. It goes like this. As the first man, Adam represented all humanity, okay? So we're all descended, by the way, from the same first humans, We're all descended from from Adam and Eve. And as the first man, he represented everyone who would come after him as the first human. It's the same way, for instance, when an elected elected official represents us, right? Or the same way a, a ball team represents a city, right? Or even more than that, when somebody on a team scores a goal, do they credit the goal just to that person or the whole team? To the whole team. That's the idea behind federal headship. Adam represented us. When he sinned, we sinned. There's an old expression: in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Romans 5 fills this out. You can check it out if you want to get into more detail, but verse 12 says of Romans 5: wherefore is by one man that's Adam, Sin entered the world, and death by sin, for that all sinned. How we sinned in Adam. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Somebody says, well, I don't really like that. I don't think it's up for debate, but I would say to you, stop sinning. And if you were honest, you would say, well, I can't help it. To which I would say, right. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. So now we're sinners by volition as will. As well. Now, as I laid out in our Christmas series many months ago from Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death is a result of sin. And there's three kinds of death you ought to know about. The first result of the fall was spiritual death, right? Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, right? Fellowship with God was cut off. So every person since Adam is born physically alive, right? but spiritually stillborn. That's why people can be brilliant yet fools at the same time, right? They, they, they need a rebirth. So the first effect of sin is spiritual death. The second effect is physical death. We die physically because sin brought the curse of death into the world. There's a third form of death, eternal death. If you physically die, While still spiritually dead, you eternally die, separated from God. So there are three kinds of death. How did death come into the world through what man? Adam. But now he talks about the last Adam. I think that's the expression in verse 45. We'll see that next week. You have this second man, this last Adam, Jesus. And here it says, again, verse 21, by a man referring to Christ has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, here's how this went down. Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, he's always existed as God, right? He added to his fully divine nature a fully human nature. That's what Christmas is all about. Theologians call this the hypostatic union, 100%. Man, and 100% God, inseparable and yet unmixed. Most Christians do not know why it is so important that they hold to the Bible teaching that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin conception. If someone were to ask you, what's so important about that other than the Bible teaches it, and it does, why is that important? What would you say? He was not conceived in sin. Thank you. Exactly. He did not inherit the sin nature of Adam, which every other human born by natural conception has. Virgin conception guaranteed that he was not born with a sinful nature, yet born with a fully human nature so that he could be our second representative. And represent us, he did. Whereas Adam failed, Jesus Christ succeeded. How did he succeed? First, Jesus did what Adam and every one of us here failed to do, obey God perfectly, right? Obedience is a matter of motivation, of deed, of word, and on and on and on. Not only did he do what we failed to do, he obeyed God perfectly, they call that his passive righteousness, he also dealt with what we could not deal with, that is our sin, he took Adam's sin. He took our sin, and on the cross, in his act of righteousness, he paid the penalty and absorbed the full wrath of God. And let me tell you, he went into the grave soaked with our sin. He came out of the grave sans our sin, without our sin. He went into the grave with our sin, and he stepped out of our grave, out of his grave, without sin. He went into the grave, cursed of God, Galatians 3.13. He came out of the ground, blessed of God, Psalm 1. Now listen, when it says in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, Paul is not teaching universalism. Some people isolate on this verse. You know, a text without a context is a proof text for whatever you want to say. They isolate on that verse and they say, oh, see, Everyone's going to be saved through Christ. No, the all of verse 22 is defined by verse 33. So let's look at verse 33. I'm sorry, 23. It says, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, who? Those who belong to Christ. Listen. Listen. Those who have trusted Christ, they've turned from their sin. They've seen themselves a sinner who deserved the judgment of God, but they believe that Jesus Christ paid that penalty on the cross, and they truly have turned to him. They've been united to him by faith. They're no longer in their first head, Adam. They're now in Christ. Because Christ was raised from the dead, they will be raised from the dead. Is that you? If you've turned to Christ, I will say on the basis of God's word, for such people, death is already done in terms of spiritual death. It's already done. You've already been made alive physically or spiritually, right? That's what we baptized right here, raised in newness of life, to picture what happened at conversion. So people say stuff like this, I can't believe this, but I believe it. That's what Stephen said, right? The greatest news ever. And verse 23 gives us a view, a quick snapshot of how things are gonna play out in the future. Then, okay, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. When Christ comes, the first fruits, and the word coming is perusa, It's used in ancient literature of kings when they enter a city that they have dominion over. When Christ enters this realm again in bodily form, as he did in his first coming, only a different way in his second coming, every person in Christ, here he's not talking about the lost, he's talking about saved, is gonna rise from the dead. I can't imagine what that's gonna look like. I was at a very old uh, New England graveyard a couple weeks ago doing my dad's wife's funeral, and it was an old graveyard. I got pictures of those tombstones from like 1672. 1743, people who died at 16 years old and 89 years old and all the rest. And I couldn't help but think, what is it going to look like at that great getting up day at that graveyard? You say, how in the world is God going to recompose dust? We'll talk about that next week. Come back because it is powerful truth. Verse 24, it says this. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Powers, sin, rebellion, people. Listen, we like to think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But according to this verse, this restore is also going to come back destroying as part of his work of restoration. He's not only going to destroy, he's going to dominate verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be be destroyed is death. Death will be no more. Man, Can you imagine that? All God's people from every place and every race from every era and from every ethnicity, from every age and every stage, will be raised from the dead, their glorified bodies to be reunited forever with their souls. This is the great hope that we have. And hope in Bible doesn't mean wishy-washy. It's a confident expectation that because Christ is risen, I will rise. And that day is coming. The great getting up day is coming where it says in Revelation 21, God's gonna take out his divine clinics. You've heard me say that, it's cliche, but he's going to, and death shall be no more. Now, in the rest of these verses, I'm not gonna deal with them. It is not teaching Jesus is less than God. It's teaching functional subordination within the Trinity. We can talk about that if you would like later. But I wanna to get to the last point because we are going to go to celebrate communion. Number one, because Jesus is alive, Christianity is not fable, it's fact. It's fact. Number two, because Jesus is alive, death is done already for us spiritually and in the future physically at his coming, the first fruits of a great harvest to come. Third and finally, because Jesus is risen, risk is right. Now, before Paul makes this, this case, this third point, he just a little bit more is going to dial in on the reality of the resurrection with classic, I think, Pauline sarcasm. Paul uses a lot of sarcasm. You know that? And he uses sarcasm in what may be the most puzzling, head-scratching verse of all the Bible. Did it kind of catch you when when Pastor Charles read verse 29? Baptism of the dead? Whoa, we don't practice that here at Restore. What's going on? Look at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, I was telling Susan, there are literally 41 to 42 interpretations of this verse. She said, are you going to give them all? I said, of course I am. That's what I do. No, I'm I'm not. I'm not. Okay? Right? I think the plainest reading is the best reading. Now, stay with me on this, okay? Okay? I believe what they were literally doing is baptizing dead people by proxy. So person A died, didn't get baptized, so living person B, they baptized them in their name. Sometimes people said they did that for people who had received Christ, but because the persecution had not yet been baptized before they died. Now, you guys are looking at me puzzling. I'm not sanctifying this, neither is Paul. Just stay with me. I actually, in the end, don't know what the right interpretation is. There's 42. But I can say dogmatically based on the analogy of faith, in other words, comparing Scripture with Scripture, what it doesn't mean and what is what, what Mormons base their heretical practice on. Mormons literally uh, have take old abandoned missile silos full of filing cabinets of records of dead people who they People were baptized by proxy for. So I'm talking about the Marine Corps. Some guys in my unit, we had our last battalion commander back in my old unit was a guy named Lieutenant Colonel Young. I think he was in in the lineage of Brigham Young. And the rumor going around was that he was having uh, people baptized for our wives so that he could have our wives in in in, in, the, in the Mormon paradise. And they were basing that garbage on. This verse in isolation. It doesn't mean that. First of all, what does the Bible tell us about about salvation? Does it say salvation is by baptism? No, by grace you have been saved through faith. We lay hold of Christ, not by baptism, but by faith. And number two, what does the Bible say about baptism? It says it's for people who themselves repent, right? It says nothing about being baptized for people who have died. Now, the Bible further makes it clear there is no opportunity of any kind after death to receive Christ. Hebrews 9.27 says his appointed man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. So what's your point? Here's my point. Paul, you'll note, is not affirming this practice. Is he affirming this practice here to he say, I think you ought to do this? Does he say that? No. Paul is not affirming this practice. I think he's doing this. In classic Pauline sarcasm. They were doing wacky stuff at the church at Corinth, right? We already knew, know that from all the other chapters. He is merely making his case for resurrection from their wacky, to say the least, practice of baptizing some people for the dead. In other words, he's saying this, if you don't believe the dead are raised, why are you even bothering to baptize people for others who have already died if they're just going to stay there? Does that make sense? I think there's an even bigger point. Sometimes people say, you know, the reason I am not going to believe in Jesus is because there's some tough stuff in the Bible to understand like this. You guys can't even agree on it. Or they'll say, I can't believe in Jesus because there's some uh, alleged contradictions in the Bible. You ever heard anybody say that? By the way, when they say that, ask them for a few. You might be surprised at what they can't say. But And we've all used it. I I, I don't know if I use that, but people have used that before coming to Christ, and we'd be patient and loving. But I'm talking to believers right now, and I would say this to you. Kurt Allen, he's a Christian pastor, hip-hop artist, said this, quote, if you can disprove the resurrection, you've got my attention. Because my faith is in vain, first paragraph right here, if in fact Christ is not raised. If you can't disprove the resurrection then honestly, I don't care about what you say are contradictions because he is alive and that's what matters. So the real question is, is he alive? And we have seen the proofs of his resurrection. We've seen the implications in this third implication now found in the belly of this paragraph, verses 30 through 32, is that risk is right. Listen to these verses. I mean, they just explain themselves. Why are we in danger every hour? In other words, why are we putting our neck out there for the name, right? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? You see what he's saying? Listen, why would I even bother? Suffer. Why would I go through this for the sake of the name if the name is in the grave? He goes on to say, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Let's just have a party. i well do whatever I want with whoever I want, however I want, whenever I want, and all the rest. But his point is, because Christ is raised, right? It is worth risk. It is worth suffering. And yes, 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 suffering does hurt. Don't minimize suffering, right? But Paul does say, this light In the eternal grand scheme of things, not right now, this light momentary affliction, suffering, is working for us an eternal weight of glory as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. And what that means is this. The embarrassment that you feel now because you tried to share Jesus with your boss, you tried to share Jesus with your neighbor, you tried to share Jesus with your friend, and they mocked you and it, was, it didn't go well. The embarrassment you feel for that right now is gonna lead to greater glory then. That's what it means. It means the job promotion you don't get right now because you aren't gonna play by some rules that are unethical or because you're not gonna throw your family under the bus for the sake of almighty job the job promotion you do not experience now for the sake of Christ, I believe is gonna to lead to greater glory than in the day of resurrection. And I would just say, the fact that you're left out of a popular group, a clique, an in-group, because, hey, I'm gonna walk with Christ, will lead to greater glory then. Jim Elliott said he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep. To gain what he cannot lose, and so Paul ends with a warning right here to us: Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. I always think of the music, bad, bad company when I when I read that, and then I think it's a verse that your dad would give you, right? You know, bad company ruins good morals. And there's a general principle there, but there's a context, okay? And the ultimate context: the bad company here is people who confess Christ, okay, but either dismiss or downplay vital doctrines, like a lot of so-called Christians are today. So it is saying something in in generic terms about your everyday friend group. We should be a friend of sinners, but who are the main people you hang out with, right? That will impact you. So that truth is there, but specifically (laughs) Christians who I would say this. People confess the name of Jesus Christ but dismiss primary doctrines as secondary. Paul actually says in in, in Romans 16 and 17 that you ought to mark such people and avoid them. He's talking about separation, the doctrine of separation from such people. Because what that leads to is a loss of biblical ethics. Now, can grievous sin happen anywhere and everywhere, even where there's incredible doctrine? Yes or no? Yes, of course, because sinners are everywhere, right? But making that fair observation, this is also a fair observation. It is no surprise when denominations, I can't say that word, denominations, groups of Christians deny or downplay crucial doctrines, right? You know, like the resurrection, like the propitiation, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice of, of Christ, denominations who downplay that stuff, it is no surprise if they, if they soon, if not already, embrace stuff, say, like homosexuality or abortion. And I can give you a case study. History shows that when cardinal doctrines are thrown out, biblical ethics are soon thrown out. All you gotta do is look at United Methodist Church, Right? Sanctifying so-called same-sex union and all the rest. And that's true on a personal level, family. There is a connection between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. I want to close with just reading an excerpt from a really wonderful article published in the Gospel Coalition. I think it was last year the year before by a guy named Brett McCracken. The title of the article, check it out. Check out the whole article. The title is, Cool Christianity is Still a Bad Idea. And he's writing kind of towards church planners right now, but I'm going to read this for the benefit of us all. Quote, he writes, In the decades since hipster Christianity, I've noticed a pattern. A theologically conservative 20-something seminary grad is amped about planting a church in some post-Christian place with killer coffee. (laughs) We got pretty good coffee here, but it doesn't mention Detroit. Portland, Brooklyn, San Francisco. He moves there and starts a church with good intentions to transform the highly secular culture for Jesus. But over time, the highly secular culture transforms him instead. Ostensibly, missional immersion in the libertine morality woke politics and craft beer scene of the city's gentrified neighborhood forms him in its image. Instead of changing the culture, he is changed by it. No, no, risk starts with standing on God's word and being honest about it, right? 2 Corinthians 5 says this, that to some we will be the aroma of life to those who are being saved. And to others, we will be the stench of death to those who are rejecting. And the problem is, is when a Christian wants to smell good to everyone, you do not salvifically smell good to those who are being called because you don't stand on the word, you don't give them the gospel. In other words, if you want to smell good to those that God would bring to himself, you have to be willing to stink to others. That's Paul's message. And that means because Jesus is alive, risk is right. And he he closes with this call, verse 34. Therefore, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For, For some have no knowledge of God, those people we need to reach. I say this to your shame, he was telling them. So God's word to us today, I hope, hits us between the eyes with this single round Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, Christianity is no fable. It is fact. And because Jesus is alive, hallelujah, death is done. We're going to dive into that next week. And because Jesus is alive, risk is right. Now, what does that mean to us? May the Spirit massage and apply this truth into our hearts together.